Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Hey everyone, just a heads up that we've got a somewhat different episode for you today. We're going to discuss some thought-provoking statistics on issues like mental health, social media, and even dating. Yes, it can be polarizing, but I encourage you to listen with an open mind. I can say that I walked away with valuable insights that changed my perspective on the challenges and opportunities we all face in the 21st century. Scott Galloway is a professor of marketing at NYU Stern School of Business and a serial entrepreneur. He's the best-selling author of Post-Corona, The Four, and The Algebra of Happiness. He has served on the boards of directors of the New York Times Company, Urban Outfitters, and Berkeley's Haas School of Business. His Prop G and Pivot podcast, No Mercy, No Malice blog, and Prop G YouTube channel reach millions. And in 2019, he founded Section 4, an online education platform for working professionals where he teaches business strategy, which you can check out at section4.com. You can find him on Twitter and Instagram, at Prof Galloway. And today, he's here to chat about his new must-read book titled Adrift, America in 100 Charts. Scott, welcome. Thanks, Jason. Good to be with you. So as I mentioned, my wife and I are big fans of your work. Um, we, we love your latest book, um, you know, and the book has a hundred thought-provoking charts and data points covering everything from business, social issues, relationships, technology, and health. And, you know, I, I'm going to start with one that, that really stood out to me. It was on water safety. You know, you say in 2019, the EPA administrator, Andrew Wheeler, bragged, bragged that 92% of water in America was safe, which you point out leaves us with 8% that is not safe, which means that 26 million Americans would be at risk. And to put this more in perspective, I love how you give context here, 97% of Americans have cell phones. So more Americans have cell phones than clean water. So what does this say about us? Well, and also the numbers get worse. That 8% will disproportionately over-index in people in the lowest quintile of income earning. Uh, households and neighborhoods. So if you're in the lowest quintile of income earners, it's not a one in 12 likelihood. You don't have access to safe water or clean drinking water. It's probably more like there's a one in three or one in four chance you don't have access to clean water. The broader point is that a big theme in the book is that a decent proxy for the health of a nation is how strong its middle class is. And a reflection of our investment in the middle class is simply put our investment in infrastructure, in roads, in you know water treatment plants, in hospitals, healthcare, education, because the wealthy don't really need infrastructure. And that is, if you're wealthy, you have your kids in a private school, you have access to your own infrastructure, whether it's a private plane or a driver or the ability to stay at home at work. Remote work is especially advantageous or accessible for people who make over $100,000 a year. Two thirds of people make over $100,000 a year can work remote. It's like 10 or 20% for people under 60,000. So you have access to your own healthcare. You can create your own infrastructure if you're wealthy. And on a per capita basis, China is investing 10 times more in infrastructure than the US. And if you look at China over the last Uh, 40 years, they've brought a half a billion people out of poverty into the middle class, which is arguably one of the greatest feats in the history of mankind. 
And if you were to describe, relatively speaking, a nation who's been most ascendant in the last 40 years, it's been China on the backs of what I would call not only incredible migration of from rural to urban and manufacturing technology and management techniques, but also their commitment to their middle class. We have not reflected the same commitment and a lack of investment in infrastructure as evidenced by the fact that one in 12 Americans or probably one in four middle or low income Americans don't have access to what is considered sort of a, almost like a basic human right that we, I'm involved in an organization called Charity Water, which builds wells in sub-Saharan Africa. And I remember getting involved in it, one, because I think the founder, Scott Harrison, is a, a true leader and a, just a, 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 you know, a remarkable young man. And two, to me, it was unthinkable that people wouldn't have access to safe drinking water. And yet it's happening here in the United States. So it, it says a lot of things, none of them good. You know, I think this touches on the larger issue of, of health we have in America. You know, another headline from the book, you say the U.S. healthcare system is embarrassingly inefficient. The U.S. healthcare industry accounts for 45% of all medical spending globally. We spend almost 18% of our GDP on it, yet we lag behind Australia, Israel, the Netherlands, Portugal, Switzerland, and the U.K. And, and something we've talked a lot about in the show, currently we have a disease care system. Uh, which is, is built for, for catastrophic care. And we don't do a lot in terms of preventative care. 12% uh, of Americans are metabolically healthy, which means 88% are not. Um, We're not incentivizing people uh, to get fit, to get well. We're also not educating them. And it's, it's a big issue. You know, you just came from the gym. I know you take your health very seriously. Um, you know, and I think one of the, the many tragedies coming out of COVID, and there are many, you talked about education, you talk about the disappearing middle class, um, is that we could have used that as an opportunity, I think, to really educate people about taking preventative, proactive measures in terms of their diet, nutrition, exercise. So I'll pause there. And I want to talk about, you know, one, why we're so bad at health and, and your opinion on, you know, why it is so important for us to take care of ourselves. It's something you take seriously. Well, I'll start. I'll go in reverse order. Uh, I think a decent forward-looking indicator of your success is the ratio of time you spend sweating to watching other people sweat. Show me somebody who watches ESPN two hours a night and spends all day on the couch watching football. I'll show you a future of failed relationships and anger. Show me somebody who does Pilates, works out, boxes, runs four or five times a week and uses sports as a means of establishing relationships in the company of others. And I'll show you someone who is um, good at life. And uh, Fortune 500 CEOs, what do they have most in common? It's not that they graduated from an Ivy League school. It's not even their, their race. It's not that they came from rich parents. It's that about 480 of them work out uh, four to five times plus a week. And we are a social species. We are happy, happiest when we are in movement and surrounded by others whether it's foraging for food, uh, hunting prey, uh, we're meant to be around other people sweating. And for me, it's, I struggle with uh, happiness, or I should say I struggle with depression. 
and my antidepressant, I learned this very early, is sweating. It just resets my system. And my first piece of advice, when someone is feeling down, when someone is jet lagged, when someone is dealing with a difficult time in their life, is that sweating kind of resets the operating system. And whether it's feeling more confident, I think it's important for people, I think all young people should be able to walk into any room and know that if shit got real, they could either kill and eat everybody or they could outrun them. And I'm at the stage now where I'm trying to figure out how to outrun people. But I think feeling really strong, and it's not, I'm not saying be ripped. I'm not saying be super skinny. I'm saying be the strongest version of yourself such that I think it results in a few things. You're much less prone to depression. I think you're kinder. Um, I think you're less likely to engage in violence because you're more confident and you see your role as a peacekeeper when you're strong. I think you're more likely to feel confident uh, in a relationship and uh, have a larger selection set of mates. I think sex and intimacy are more fun when you feel good about your body. So I think just so many wonderful things come from this recognition that you are not in a rental. You own this property and you can't sell it or there's one way to sell it and that's it. It's over. So, uh, and it just, it really disappoints me um, how non-seriously young people take fitness. And when I was growing up, we used to celebrate fitness. We had something called the Presidential Fitness Awards. I don't know if you're old enough to remember that. Yeah, I remember that. And slowly but surely, they got starched out of the public school system as people saw them as fat shaming. I don't think someone who's obese is finding his or her truth. I think they're finding diabetes. And I don't think, I, I think we need to, to make a, a serious investment in food deserts and fitness and uh, level up lower income homes who are much more prone to needing for economic reasons to ingest food that's very high caloric and very cheap, which happens to be stuffed with trans fats. And we need to start funding more after school sports programs. So at a young age, kids engage and find self-worth and fitness. So I don't think we should shame obesity, but we shouldn't celebrate it. And it seems to me that the fashion industrial complex and media can't make, make up in mind. It either wants you to be anorexic or diabetic, uh, it, or diabetic. Excuse me. I just don't, I think we should celebrate fitness. I think we should look at obesity and say, how do we give people who are prone, communities that are prone to obesity, the economics to start eating better, the, uh, the freedom and the coaching and the opportunity to start moving more. Uh, I, I think strength and fitness are something we absolutely need to re-engage and celebrate. And I'm not talking about running a 4-4-40 or being on the football team or being a star gymnast. I'm talking about being with others and engaging in a wonderful activity where you sweat together and, and you're on a team or you hit new personal highs, whether it's running a 15-minute mile or just running a mile. But I, I don't, um, I think fitness and physicality and touch, I don't think we're touching each other enough, um, are, are a huge component and there's, there's a lot of science to back this up around our wellness. And the, you know, you want to be happier. You want to be more likely to succeed. You want to decrease your likelihood of depression. You want to be more kind. You want to have a broader selection set of mates. Simple. Sweat. A lot to unpack there. And hearing you speak, you know, I think of myself personally, you know, I had the good fortune of, of 
playing basketball in college and in an Ivy League school, both. And to this day, I will say this to anyone, I learned more from playing basketball than I did at Columbia, full stop. No question. You played basketball at Columbia? Yes. 25, long time ago. 94 to 98. So it's been it's been a minute. Oh, dude, that's not a long time. I rode crew, I rode crew at UCLA in 1983. You got me by, I, I looked, I think you have me by 11. I'm, no, I'm November 4th, 74. And I, I think you're, you're, when you're, you're 10 years, you're exactly 10 yeah, years younger than ten, me. 10 years younger than you. So with that said, there, there's a lot to unpack there. You know, you said you, you've struggled with depression and you're not alone. We're in the middle of a mental health epidemic. Why do you think, you know, you, you talk about the need for touch, the need for sweat, the need uh, to engage in a more meaningful way in real life and, and how those ladder up to happiness. And then I think about where we are as a society and how unhappy we are. And I don't have a lot of hope, but I'm an optimist. So how do you think about happiness right now? And that huge challenge we face with the younger generation. And, and this is this is not just exclusive to the younger generation um, and, and the mental health epidemic we face. How do we get over it? Well, I talk a lot about this in the book and there's some very troubling statistics. So let's start with the bad news. And I'm a glass half empty kind of guy, so I have no problem going on forever about how fucked up we are. So the percentage of boys and girls joining Boys or Girl Scouts has declined by a third. The number of people who speak to their neighbors is declined by 40%. The percentage of high schoolers who see friends every day has been cut in half the last 10 years. Um, one in five people say they don't have a good friend. It's just, there is an enormous crisis of loneliness. It started with the phone. It then kind of got exponentially, the fuel on the fire was polarization, where we've decided that 50% of America is our enemy. A third of each political party thinks that the members of the other political party are their enemy. 54% of Democrats are worried their kid's going to marry a Republican. So we're self-segregating and then we're physically segregating because we're no longer going to work as much. We're no longer going to the mall. We're no longer going to the movies. We're not going as often to the gym. We're not engaging in church, softball leagues, whatever. Anything that used to bring us together, this notion of third spaces, is going, we don't go to the grocery store. So where do you run into the single mom with two kids and start developing empathy? Where do you see the homeless veteran uh, if you don't, uh, if you're not on an off-ramp or an on-ramp to work? Like where do you run into, where do you strike a conversation with a strange potential mate and get his or her number for coffee and strike up a, a potentially romantic relationship? Where do you find mentors, friends. And there's just a ton of research showing that when people are lonely, it's the equivalent of smoking 15 or 17 cigarettes a day. When those, when the Imperial Army of Japan retreated from the South East Asian islands or the South Pacific, and they left a couple soldiers, usually one, and said, okay, go into the hills and just wreak havoc. Don't let them get this island easily. Some of these guys were in the hills for 20 years. I mean, it's fascinating stories. They had to find their commissioned officer, get the commissioned officer to show up to the island in a uniform and relieve them of their duty. And when they interviewed these guys, they had learned nor accomplished anything. There was no spiritual awakening. There was no real learnings even around survival techniques. It just once every 
blue moon, they would come into the a village at the bottom of the hill, terrorize it, and then descend into the into the hills. Uh, people become mentally ill. They become unhappy. Um, not all people, but especially men, when they're alone. We're a social species. My dogs, you know, they're they're just such pure mammals. All they want is to lay on you. You know, they just. It's kind of like their perfect day would be, can I just lay on you, be close to you, and occasionally we'll take a break to get snacks. And I think that they represent a pretty decent example of mammals. And we are meant to be around each other. We're meant to be in the company of each other. And I coach a decent number of young men, and I'm raising two boys. And something I force my 14-year-old to do, and I'm starting to do it, and God, he's 15 now, my 12-year-old as well, is when we're in a strange place, be it a Starbucks or at a soccer game, I task them with initiating conversation with one stranger. I don't care if it's in line to get peanuts, the people sitting next to you. If we score a goal, I want to see you high five a stranger. I want you to say something to the guy or person in front of you. I want you to ask the person giving you your Coca-Cola, um, you know, where are you from? I it, just once. Because I find young people are isolating to their phones, not developing the skills to engage in physical relationships, and that's going to have a huge impact on our mental health. And I also want to be uh, sober about my struggles with depression. You know, I think we. And first off, I would not. I would just. It would. It would be classified as very as very mild because um, I'm not. I haven't, I haven't so far decided or needed to go on pharmaceuticals. I'm not in regular therapy. I just like to think I'm in touch with the fact that more than most people, I struggle with anger and it takes a real toll on me. And just talking about it and recognizing it and then having a strategy once I recognize it for trying to get out of it sooner than it might on its own is important. But I don't want to. I don't want in any way diminish what some people struggle with and say that oh, just follow my. I have a five-letter acronym for how do I get out of it. I want to recognize that some people struggle with depression that is just so that just dwarfs anything I have to deal with. But the one of the reasons I talk about it is one, I find talking about it is really helpful, and two, we destigmatize cancer. We're starting to destigmatize mental illness, but we've destigmatized it for women, not men. If a woman says, I feel down and I'm depressed, it's an entirely different reaction than if a grown man in his 40s or 50s who's considered successful says, I'm depressed and I'm down. You know, men, I mean, I remember in the 70s, they called it a nervous breakdown. Women were allowed to have nervous breakdowns. And it was, oh, if that happens to women, they're weak. And it was this weird term, nervous breakdown. Men were supposed to be strong and stay stoic until they couldn't take it anymore and then blow their heads off with a gun. That's, that was how we kind of categorized mental illness and depression. All right, women are allowed to have this nervous breakdown. They're the weaker sex. Men are supposed to take it. And then if it gets too much, they can kill themselves with a gun. And so I think that we're having this wonderful, wonderful awakening around the fact that it's not a hell of a lot different than any other thing or catching a cold. And when you treat it and acknowledge it, you're much more inclined to get better. But I do think we have much more stigma around male depression. And I think that keeping it inside makes you more prone 
for it to bubble up in some sort of addiction or self-harm or a lack of kindness or bringing the entire fucking house down because no one knows what's wrong with you and you won't talk about it. So, you know, my place, if you will, is I like to talk about it. And I also like to encourage young men that it is okay to be sad when something happens to you. It is okay to mourn. It is okay to be down and tell other people, I'm down, I'm depressed, and this is why, or I don't know why. And, uh, and what you find is, when I started talking about, you know, I'm a 57-year-old man that still hasn't gotten over the death of his mother. It sounds really weird to say that because I, am a, I consider myself an alpha male. I'm fairly successful by most exterior measures. But whenever I write about my mom, you would not believe the number of men I hear from and say, yeah, I, I, I still struggle with the death of my dad or I can't, you know, I can't get over, you know, this loss and it still haunts me every day. So I find that it's not only good for your own mental health, it's liberating for other people because it gives them permission to talk about it and it creates a support network. You know, it, it, so I think that the destigmatization of mental health is really wonderful. And the one of the silver linings that could be the size of the cloud coming out of the pandemic, you mentioned we spend 70% of our GDP on healthcare, about $3 trillion. U.S. healthcare is largely the, is probably the biggest consumer business in the world. There's just very few businesses that are $3 trillion, maybe fossil fuels. And yet our outcomes are worse. You know, infant mortality, life expectancy. Life expectancy is a little bit, requires some nuance because if you have money, your life expectancy is going up, but it's been dragged down three out of the last four years. Life expectancy has gone down for the first time in history in the US because of opioid crisis. And there's just a lot of unmarked graves with lower middle income and lower income kids and young people that no one really, quite frankly, cares that much about outside of their, outside of their close family. Otherwise, we wouldn't let more people die every year than died in the entire Vietnam conflict. That's how many people were losing to opioids every year. In the have, have you seen Dope Sick? A landmark piece of work. Yeah, I, I couldn't. I was watching with my wife. I had to turn away. I said, this is too painful. I can't. I, I, I would have to tune it into that. Heartbreaking. Staggering. And also, I'm a huge fan of Michael Keaton, and I thought it was just a great crowning achievement for his career. But, you know, we have um, healthcare is just an entirely different system for the rich. Wealthy people have never lived longer in the U.S., and the average uh, you know, life expectancy is going down because of the opioid crisis. But I went back to my high school um, to film a CNN show about three months ago, and my high school is now, I think it's about 80 or 90 percent people of color, it's got the unfortunate reputation of having the school with the most homeless kids or kids that are categorized as homeless. But it's not a sob story. 90% of them are going to college. It's really, it's, it's exactly what you would want government and public schools uh, to be doing. And when I was in high school in the 80s, it's a big high school. Every two weeks, it felt like at the front, the entryway, there were flowers and a memorial for a kid who had died. And it was always the same thing. It was a drunk driving accident. A kid went into the hills to some party or something, got fucked up, rolled his Jeep dead. Kid on a moped gets hit. It felt like literally every two weeks someone was dying in a car accident because our cars were death traps. You know, no collapsible steering shaft, no airbags. The car I drove, I drove a Renola car. It was a lawnmower with doors. Mothers against drunk driving hadn't kicked in. Kids were still drinking and driving all the time in LA. No public transportation. You had to have a car. You had no social life. Now... They have the same number of memorials, but it's suicide. It's deaths of despair. 
it's it's self-harm it's it's um overdoses and so we've gone from a country where it used to be drinking to now it's depression among young amongst young people and the silver lining is that telehealth less than three percent of doctors visits pre-pandemic were done virtually now it's almost a third and it checked back to about 25 percent when the pandemic began to soften as more people went back to the doctor in person but the real growth in that explosion has been in uh, therapy or mental mental wellness visits with therapists and so when you think about the opportunity to disperse uh, therapy and and mental wellness to our smartphones and the anonymity and efficiency and lower cost you could have what is arguably one of the biggest unlocks in our history in terms of healthcare. And that is there is an entire population that is either too intimidated or doesn't have the economics to engage in any sort of mental health or wellness. And our phones and a recognition that this is something that is treatable, that every family, you know, they say cancer touches every family, mental illness can't hands down touches every family at some point. The opportunity to disperse this and uh, you mentioned that we're kind of a disease-driven healthcare system. I think of it as getting off our heels onto our toes, uh, sort of uh, preventive care, getting involved with people, checking in, um, I think is super exciting. I'm involved in a uh, organization called JED. When I say involved, I raise some money that focuses on teen depression and prevention of teen suicide. And you leveraging the infrastructure of high schools and colleges, giving them information which they're hungry for, and the, the, the tools to recognize the difference between teen behavior, which can seem just very abnormal, and behavior that might indicate this person is capable of self-harm. And then once you identify that person, how to treat it, how to intervene, the relationship with the parents, you know, what do you do? And th this organization is getting massive traction as our other teen depression um, organizations. I think there's a recognition that a lot of our social media companies have delayed and obfuscated around this issue. And we are just starting to register, force them to register some accountability. When one, when one in eight uh, teenager, teenage girls in, uh, 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 that are depressed in the United Kingdom cite specifically Instagram as a cause for their depression, people are are giving overdue scrutiny to to these platforms. So I'm actually quite hopeful. Teen depression went up 80% since social went on mobile, which means it's a man-made phenomena and there's no reason we there's no reason we can't unmake it. So the the good the bad news is these problems are of our own making. The good news is they can absolutely be unmade. And what the incumbents and, and tech platforms and the firms that are making money off these externalities will claim is that these are what I call the illusion of complexity. The teen depression is a complicated issue and there's uh, societal issues around the brain and all of that is true. But if it went up 80% when social went on mobile, maybe we should think about age gating social media. We age gate porn, we age gate content, we educate the military, alcohol, driver's licenses. I don't see any reason why a 14-year-old girl should be on Instagram. I see no reason. I think the downsides vastly outweigh the upsides. So long-winded way of saying, I think we have a crisis, an emerging, it's not even longer emerging. It's a mental health crisis among our teens. And the good news is it's addressable. And I also think that, uh, do you have kids? Yeah, as a parent of a, a five and three-year-old girl, 
very concerning for me. They're, they're too young for it, but I see what's happening. It's concerning. See, I think it's hopeful for you. I think by the time your kids are old enough for Instagram or Snap or YouTube, uh, we will have taken action. Um, I think it's the kids now, uh, of all the regrets we have, I think in 20 years when we look back and think, okay, income inequality, we let it get out of control, or the opioids, awful. I think the thing we'll probably regret the most when we look back is we're going to think, how did we let this happen to our kids? Presenting a 15-year-old with their full self, 24 by 7. You know, I used to, I got to leave school. I got to go home and watch cartoons. I got to hang out with my mom. I wasn't, if I wasn't invited to a party, nobody knew but me. I didn't have to see it play out in real time alone in my bedroom. You know, I didn't, and there's a difference between boys and girls. It's been worse for girls, at least depression at the hands of social because boys bully physically and verbally, girls bully relationally. And we put these nuclear weapons in their hands. So I, I'm hopeful that by the time your kids hit kind of their social age or social media age, things will be, things will be different. I, I just, I think parents are like, okay, what's the point of any of this? What's the point of the NASDAQ? What's the point of stock options? What's the point of podcasts if our kids are cutting themselves? I agree. And just before I move on to, to, to mobile and technology, just to emphasize the point that this is not exclusively a girl issue or a boy issue, you provide some data in the book. You talk at out, Outlook at Birth by Gender. Girls, three times more likely to experience abuse, three times more likely to self-harm, whereas boys, two times more likely to overdose and three and a half more times likely to commit suicide. So it's not just a girl issue or a boy issue, it just manifests in different ways. And to, to segue to, to our addiction to our phones, you cite a 2020 study that found that 96% of Gen Z Americans won't go to the bathroom without their smartphone. And that Gen Z, on average, does 79 unlocks on their device a day. Millennials a little better at 63, Gen X, that's me at 49, and, and baby boomers the best at 30. That's pretty bad. <laughs> um, I'm convinced we all have a vice. I think we're all sort of semi-addicted to something, um, whether it's trans fats, um, whether it's sex, whether it's gambling, whether it's um, you know codependence, uh, uh, shopping late at night, wh whatever on, on e-commerce sites. I think most people marijuana, alcohol, I think most people have some sort of vice or addiction. I'm addicted, I'm addicted to affirmation. I need my content to resonate with other people. And the way I find that affirmation is in social media. Somebody says something about my book or writes it up on LinkedIn, and I will check my phone 15, 20 times to read the comments and hope that people validate my work. And I'm addicted to that affirmation. It gives me a dope -a hit to go on Twitter or LinkedIn and have someone say something nice about my book. It also enrages me when they say something mean, which creates engagement. And then I go back a bunch of times hoping someone weighs in and tells that person that they should rot in hell. And, and I, but I'm old enough to mo somewhat modulate it. I sleep with my phone next to me. That's, you're not supposed to do that. I do it. If I wake up, I just like check the markets. I, I love the markets. You know, I would check Twitter, but my eyes are too bad now to check it at night. But I'm that guy that goes into the phone with it. You know, if I'm at dinner and I'm bored, I don't like to admit this. I'll go into the, you know, I'll go to the bathroom and I kind of look forward to like checking my email while I'm standing at the urinal. And 
I recognize it, not that I've done anything about it, but I recognize it and I can somewhat modulate it. If I have a date night or I'm in a meeting or I'm with a person for the first time at lunch, I turn my phone off because I'm like, okay, I want to show this person that I'm interested in them and I'm just not going to stare at my phone or check it. My, I don't know if my 15-year-old son can modulate it. We take their phones from them. We only give them a certain amount of screen time. We always, the other night, my 12-year-old mom, anger she's been at me in a long time. She was out of town and she asked my 12-year-old, it was just me and the 12-year-old. She said, okay, how's Nolan? Did you put him to bed? She's like, did you take his phone? I'm like, no. And she's like, she just ripped into me. She's like, you just ruined his day today. There's no way he wasn't on his phone until 2 a.m. He's gotten no sleep. And I'm like, well, we don't know that. And she's like, oh, I know it. She's like, you know, you basically just like, you know, laid out rails of cocaine next to his nightstand to a drug addict and then left the room. And it's, it's, you know, we have to have that dopa hit. And young men are much more prone to addiction. I think women, uh, uh, girls are much more prone to that social reaffirmation. But I think young men, girls tend to modulate when they get a little bit older. Men don't. Men, 85% of gambling addicts are men. Um, uh, suicide among gambling addicts is much more likely to happen among, among men. And that dopa you get from gambling, which has been positioned as investing at companies like Robinhood, it's not, it's gambling. 80 to 95% of day traders lose money. The true tagline for Robinhood should be the more you trade, the more you lose. Um, they can have some sort of reasonable facsimile of socialization or visual stimulation um, from playing video games, and they can kind of get a weak facsimile of sex through porn. And so they're, uh, you're raising a generation of men who are in their parents' basements who kind of emerge at the age of 23 or 25 with absolutely no social skills or EQ or even a tremendous amount of motivation um, because there's a lot of wonderful material around there. This guy named Richard Reeves, who's my new Yoda, who wrote this wonderful new book called Of Boys to Men, talking about the challenges young men are facing. And I've been talking about this for a couple of years. And finally, I found the guy who like distilled it down factually. Um, but men, young men are presented with many of the same opportunities. It's not like the world, by any stretch of the imagination, has it out for them, but they're not seizing these opportunities. And I think it's biologically because their prefrontal cortex doesn't develop that kind of executive functions, knowing when to go to the party, knowing when to play video games, knowing when to study for your chemistry exam. Uh, an 18-year-old high school senior, two 18-year-old high school seniors, a boy and a girl applying to college, the 18-year-old girl is really biologically competing against a 16-year-old. And when these, I, I, the, the reality is most boys aren't ready for college um, coming, out of, coming out of high school. And I like the idea that Richard proposes of having them red shirt or some sort of social service that would create more connective tissue between Americans. But social has been especially hard on uh, teen girls um, in turn because they, they're, quite frankly, they're bigger bullies and they're more socially sensitive. And I would argue young men kind of uh, out of high school, young adult men are really struggling in our society because once we leveled the playing field uh, educationally and we, no one was expecting this, Girls just blew by boys, just blew by them. <laughs> As a girl dad, that makes me happy. But you talk about level the playing field and, you know, I'm going to segue to dating apps because you say that dating apps are the most inequitable than anywhere else on earth. You know, look, online dating 
has done a lot of good things. It's the number one place for dating, overtook bars and restaurants a few years ago. But you say by far and away the most inequitable place on earth. So can you explain that to us? I thought that was so interesting. We used to meet at work. We used to meet through friends. We used to meet online. About a third of relationships began online. 20% of marriages started online. Now it's more than half. The majority of relationships for people under the age of 30 start online. And there's if there's this huge mating inequality. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, the reality is women have a finer filter across mating than men do. Men will swipe right much more often than women. And also, when you don't meet someone in person, you lose a lot of the alchemy and mystery around attraction, humor, smell, vibe, body movements. These are the nuances and the chemistry and the serendipity and just the X factor around who, when, and why you become attracted to somebody. All of that X factor, all of that alchemy kind of gets screened out, screened out and becomes very one or two dimensional. And women are attracted to men. Uh, their primary criteria for mating are threefold. One is their ability to signal resources or their capability of acquiring resources in the future. Two is intelligence. And three is kindness. Numbers two and three are almost impossible to communicate on a dating app. So what you can communicate on a dating app is resources, which is Latin for wealth. So if you're a guy on Tinder and you just graduated from MIT and you're a first year associate at KKR, you're going to get a lot of swipe rights. And because women are choosier, they uh, are aggregating around a smaller and smaller number of people in this one dimensional presentation of online dating. So if you have 50 men on Tinder and 50 women, somewhere between 40 and 46 of the women will show all of their attention to just four of the men. Won't swipe on anyone else which leaves between 40 and 46 men vying over four to 10 women. So if you took the Gini coefficient in terms of variance and applied it to online dating, it would be more unequal. There's greater inequality than there is income inequality in Venezuela. So the net effect is the following. There's a Porsche polygamy effect, and that is the top 10% of attractiveness of males in terms of these very base criteria, mostly resources, get 80% or 90% of the interest, which leads to what I call Porsche polygamy. And that is, they get, it's great to be in the top 10% in online dating if you're a male, which quite frankly doesn't lead to, to long-term relationships or you could argue great behavior either. 50 to 90 do okay, but the bottom 50% of this very base uh, metric of attractiveness are shut out of the market. And then for women, I would say it's just generally shittier up and down the scale because the men they're interested get way too much interest and they're not interested in the, in the other one, in the rest. And the knock-on effect here is that these young men who are shut out of the mating market are arguably some of the most unproductive citizens in history. And that is, if you look at the most violent, unstable societies in the world, they all have uh, an overpopulation or they overindex around production of one type of person and that is a young, broken, alone male. When men engage in relationships, they get their shit together. They stop getting high during the week. They put on a shirt. They get a job. They don't get into fights when they go to a bar. They get their shit together. Put on a shirt. If you want to continue to hang out with me, you need to get a job. Men need, especially young men, need guardrails in the form of close, caring relationships. 
And a lot of young men are ha- aren't getting any sort of opportunities around that. And so we are producing too many of the most dangerous person in the world. And that is a young, broke, and alone man. Now, these men are very susceptible to content that hold women responsible for their shortcomings. They're much more prone to engage in misogynistic content. They blame women, which is totally incorrect and false. They are much more likely to believe in conspiracy theory. They're much less likely to believe in climate change. And once they hit a certain age, they almost, they, you almost kind of just lose them. They, they, they don't have the skills and they, they become older and older and you just sort of, they just sort of fall away. And if they're not attaching to work, they're not attaching to school or they're not attaching to a relationship, you have what are very unproductive young men. When we have a mass shooter, we know who it is before we know who it is. It's a young, it's a young man who hadn't attached to anything. The guy who attacked Salman Rushdie on stage, that wasn't about the fatwa. That was about a young man living in his mother's basement. So it's especially important that we figure out more on-ramps and more opportunities for young men to socialize and meet people and meet friends and engage in building something greater than themselves and the agency of others and strangers. And there are just too many young men not connecting to anything. And online dating is is a, a, a really a disaster for what I'll call the bottom half of attractiveness as registered by online dating criteria. So knowing that online dating is most likely here to stay, is there an answer to a better version of how that how those platforms work? Is it you know dating apps with no profile pics, or is there is there is there some sort of bridge to help get us to a better place there? It's an interesting question. This phenomenon is not unique. When technology comes into shopping, it becomes whenever technology or disruption comes into a sector, it creates consolidation. So online retail, Amazon comes in, 50% of all online retail goes to one entity. Socialization gets disrupted and technology enters. One company controls two thirds of all social media. 93% of all search is controlled by one company. And now online dating, when you think about mating, has been kind of controlled by a small number of firms. I mean, that's really strange when you think about how important mating is in a small number of companies it's not as dominant. It's no monopoly, but it's kind of an oligopoly. And so I don't know if you can hold back the tides of technology. What I think you can do is that we need more opportunities for people to meet in person. And that is, uh, I'm a big fan of instituting social service, which is easy for me to say as I've aged out. But I think that what Israel does or some countries in Northern Europe, I think uh, getting young people together to mix with people from other incomes, other demographics, other ethnicities, other sexual orientations, all in the agency of one thing. This is the one thing we all have in common. We're Americans and we're here to make America better and show more empathy for other people. Because one of the reasons we had so much great legislation in the 60s and 70s was the majority of our elected leaders had served in uniform and saw themselves as Americans well before they saw themselves as Republicans or Democrats. And we have segregated way too much and also give people the opportunity to, to, to find different people to establish friendships and romantic partnerships with 
instead of this kind of winner take most environment that online facilitates. I don't know if you can fix online dating. What you can fix is giving young people a lot more opportunity to meet. And then the second component is we have to provide more on-ramps to the middle class for young people such that we produce more economically viable men because at the end of the day, women meet socioeconomically horizontally and up, men horizontally and down. And when a man isn't economically viable, he's just has his, his opportunities for mating go to zero. So I think vocational training, more freshman seats at public universities. I don't think there should be affirmative action for men, but I think we should dramatically expand access, which will help level up men. Because I think on the margin, they're the ones that have been hurt the most with the absence of those things. You know, I think of platforms and media, and you cite this fascinating study from Wharton that performed a statistical analysis of the social sharing of the New York Times article, specifically the likelihood of Times articles that made the coveted most email list. And this was shocking. You say, quote, for every standard deviation of anxiety elicited, the probability of an article making the most emailed list went up by 21%. For awe, it went up by 30%. But the most powerful emotion was anger, increasing virality by 34%. So if I think about bringing us together, I think about empathy, I think, and I think about the platforms and, and the New York Times, arguably one of the most powerful media outlets in the world, not the most powerful. Uh, they, they've got some issues. We, you know, Bill Maher has talked about that, our friend. What does that say about us and how are we going to bridge the gap if anger is the most powerful emotion and companies like the New York Times and Facebook, et cetera, are in business. And it seems like we're in the business of anger. As a species, we're like a Tyrannosaurus Rex. We're drawn to movement and violence. And it's, um, I mean, a couple of things. Uh, I think there are systemic and then more behavioral things we need to try and do. One, we have some of our most talented people and some of our most well-resourced successful companies engaged in trying to enrage us. And that is, if there's, the dissenter's voice is important. And I think a hallmark of a free society is that pretty much everyone, pretty much anyone should be able to say pretty much anything about pretty much anybody. And they can be vile and they can be insulting and they can be profane. I think, you know, if they cross the line into hate speech, there's things that we can and should do to stop that. But the algorithms love people dunking on each other and love making um if 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 i respond back to somebody that's a really interesting point i agree with you on these two things where where i would push back is the following that gets a certain level of comments but me saying something along the lines of you know uh, john this was especially stupid even for you and i just stop right there that gets more engagement and more people weighing in and more comments, both getting back in my face, agreeing with me, smile emojis, and the more comments, every additional comment is an additional opportunity for a Nissan ad and more profit. And so the algorithms, who are benign, they're not malicious, but they're also not kind, and they're not, they don't give a shit about the Commonwealth, see that, oh my gosh, incendiary content that pits us against each other means means enragement, 
which means engagement, which means Nissan ads, which means shareholder value. And these algorithms are optimized for shareholder value. So if you think about in the third grade, when we're at recess and two kids started having words and everyone surrounded them and started screaming, fight, 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 even if they weren't planning to fight, all of a sudden there's a motivation to fight. Take that times a billion. That is what some of our most talented people and some of our most well-resourced companies are engaged in every day at scale using unparalleled processing power. How do we get more and more people to fight online with each other? And the result is a dramatic coarsening of our discourse. And then you have platforms that will claim we shouldn't have identity because they don't want to be honest about their actual number of real users. And you have what I would call a well-intentioned but misguided liberal viewpoint that the anonymous account is really important to the human rights journalists in the Gulf, which I acknowledge is a fair point. But I think the downsides of anonymity have far outweighed the upsides of anonymity. And I get enormous pushback on this. And I think there's absolutely things we could do to solve for that, where we let people have anonymous accounts, but the moment they seem to be just trying to start fights, or it looks like they, this individual might be controlling 500 accounts to try and pump Solana or, or Ethereum, we clean them out. And the platforms will throw up their arms and say, these, these issues are impossible to solve. And yet they kick one account off Twitter and election misinformation declines by 30 to 60% the next day. Amazon has, gets critic bombed for the Lord of the Rings series. In other words, a bunch of bad actors, for whatever reason, came on and started giving it one star. They have an economic incentive for reviews not to be falsely harsh. They take the comment section down. They figure out some sort of AI and identity enforcement. They repost it. And what do you know? The next day, it gets three or four stars instead of one. It doesn't get five. It's not as good as Game of Thrones, says a Game of Thrones fan but it gets a more accurate reading. They figured that out. Amazon figured that out in 48 hours, but Facebook and Twitter, and they, they just can't figure it out. And so I'm not against, I don't think we, the dissenter's voice should not be heard. I just wonder if the dissenter's voice should not get the organic or not get the reach it wouldn't organically. I think we have to address and hold these companies responsible when misinformation gets elevated algorithmically and causes harm. And then personally, I think each of us have an obligation to take the temperature down. I love getting back in people's faces. Someone says something snarky about me or my work, they stick out their chin, wham, I try and come in with a fist of stone, a terse, pithy comment, pressing on the soft tissue of their comment. People love it, huge likes. I am trying to demonstrate more grace. I don't need to respond to every slight. I don't know. A, I don't even know if it's a real person on the other end. And I don't know what's going on with that person. You know, maybe they're kids, you know, uh, struggling with something. Maybe they just got, who knows? You don't have to respond to every slight and take the temperature down. And, uh, you know, I, when someone cuts me off, uh, I'm trying to think, do I really need to honk? And then speed up and give them a dirty look. Do I really need to do that? Is that helping? So I think, and then educate our kids that, okay, and it's interesting, most schools are doing a much better job of this than they did when I was in school. So I think there are systemic regulatory fixes. And I just think each of us has to start figuring out a way 
to be a little bit, and again, it goes back to mixing with each other. If you're around 300 strangers at church or at school or in a softball league, I think you're just less likely when you, when you see people every day, you're just less likely to treat other people that way, recognizing there's probably human on the other end of this. But the biggest threat in our society right now, I don't think it's income inequality. Um, I think depression is enormous, but I wouldn't argue that's the biggest threat. All of these things are huge. We've talked about some huge. I think the biggest issue, if America comes undone, it's that we have decided the call is coming from inside of the house and that we are each other's enemy. And that is just, just not only dangerous, but it's just wrong. Our enemy is pouring over the border in Ukraine. America will never have better allies than other Americans. There's this great, and I'll stop my word salad in a second. There's this great photojournalist, I think her name's Maria Amalo. I always get her name wrong. And she's colorizing World War II photos. And there's this fantastic photo of a landing craft that just lowered the front gate. And these 26-year-old, average age 26-year-old GIs are wading through the water, heading towards Omaha Beach. Two of the three of them would not make it off that beach. Their average salary... Inflation adjusted was $800. And I imagine just as we can go back in time and see exactly what they were facing, I imagine they could flip around, look at the landing craft and through a suspension or a morphing of the space time continuum, see us and what we're facing. And I think they would say to us, one, I have no idea if the guy on the left or right of me is a Democrat or Republican. I don't give a shit. I just know we're Americans and we will will die for one another. And two, Oh, you're facing income inequality? You're facing social media that's polarizing? And you can't figure that shit out? Look what I'm facing. Look what I am facing here and now. So I I like to think, one, any recognition of the sacrifice people have made under the auspices of being Americans uh, is important and that we need to start connecting to each other around one great thing, and that is we're all Americans and we're allies of one another. And two, you know, develop some sort of connective tissue again and recognize that we're Americans first, full stop, full stop. You know, I'd be remiss not to talk about your other incredible book, The Algebra of Happiness. And if I think about all the issues we face, I think ultimately what we're all searching for, and and we've got a happiness problem. And something I thought was so interesting in the book, this idea of the arcs of, of happiness you know, the, the different arcs we experience throughout our life. So could you just briefly walk us through how that changes as we age? Yeah, it's pretty consistent across studies. And that is if you have happiness on the y-axis and um, time or your age on the x-axis, the arc of your happiness looks like a smile. And that is kind of up until age 22, 25. Life is about Star Wars, beer, college football games. You know, it's, it's a pretty good time. And then kind of 25 to 45 is what I call the shit gets real era. And that is you realize that distinct of what your mom or your college told you, you're probably not going to have a fragrance named after you or be senator. You have kids, which are joyful and hugely stressful. You find out that maintaining a relationship is hard. Someone you love and who loves you immensely gets sick and dies. You have economic strain. I don't care how rich you are. Well, I mean, all but the wealthiest people have economic strain in a capitalist society because there's always more and there's always greater expectation. And you always have somebody much more successful with much better abs 
you know, shoved in your face on Instagram or a, a friend. So your happiness actually troughs in those years. Raising kids is hard. Uh, economic striving for economic and professional success is hard. And then something wonderful happens in your forties and fifties. And that is you begin registering appreciation for things you didn't appreciate before. I remember going to lunch with my mom and she would say the salad would come or she'd order a salad and she'd stop everything and she'd put her hand on mine and want a moment of peace to recognize just how gorgeous the salad was. And I remember thinking, what the fuck? And now I go into Queens Park here in London and there's this rose garden and I have no interest in horticulture. I have no interest in flowers and I can't help but stop and smell the roses and just think, Jesus, this is beautiful. 10 years ago, I'm not sure I would have even had that reaction. And 20 years ago, I know I wouldn't have had that reaction. You start to recognize the finite nature of life because unfortunately you probably through anomalies when you get into your fifties, there's just random death. You know, my, every year it's like one or two guys from my fraternity at UCLA, I find out died with some sort of random cancer or something. And you realize, wow, I got to enjoy this. Your kids become less awful. You know, you start finding, oh my gosh, they don't require it. They're just so much, they start getting, becoming a lot of fun usually. Hopefully you've built a little bit of economic security. You start uh, just enjoying, anytime you see a friend you've been friends with for 10 or 20 years, you're just starting from a wonderful place because you have so much shared history. And you get more soulful and you get more happy. And the people that should be the least happiest, seniors, because let's be honest, you know, they're, they're watching, they have restless legs or opioid-induced constipation or glaucoma. I mean, their bodies are falling apart. They're the happiest. They're the happiest. So what I tell people, the lesson here is that if you're 34 and you play by the rules and you're, 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 you're done what you're supposed to do, but you still find yourself really stressed and occasionally kind of, you know, unhappy, just know that's part of it, man. That's part of it. And to keep on keeping on, that is a normal part of the journey. But happiness is a smile. And I would say for most people, you know, every day, one foot in front of the other. Remember, nothing is good or as bad as it seems and happiness waits for you. So lastly, you know, the, the book is titled Adrift, America and 100 Charts. And there's lots to be concerned about here in America. And then you move to London. So how much should I be reading into this, Scott? I did the same thing you did. I moved from Soho to Delray Beach, just north of Miami, about 10 years ago. And then we moved to London literally two months ago. And people immediately go to, was oh, it because of Roe? Is it because of Trump? Is it because of the polarization? Have you left America? No, I didn't pull like an Alec Baldwin, I'm leaving, you know, or whatever. I, I moved to London because I can't. I didn't, I didn't move to London because of America, because I don't like it. I moved to London because of America and the incredible prosperity it offered me such that I can return to where my parents grew up, give my kids a chance to experience a different culture and, you know, go to Barcelona on the weekend and see FC Barcelona uh, play in a soccer match. So I'm in London because America is such a wonderful country because it afforded me near free education. I came of age when processing power and the internet was coming online. Um, the blessings I've registered and many of which are not my fault have given me the wherewithal and the opportunity and the economics to move to the second greatest city in the world 
London and experience something totally different. So I'm I'm here because I think it's an amazing city. And I'm excited about Premier League soccer and forcing my kids to get outside of their bubble. But I'm here because I, I, I was blessed to be born and raised in America. Well, I'm, I'm glad we cleared that up. Scott, I uh, love the book. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you. And thanks for your good work. I think your message is really important. Thank you, Scott.